we study the Bible here at Acts Church. We study the Bible. As his saints, we have been doing this. Saints just means Christians. That's just a word that's used in scripture to refer to Christ followers, saints. Um, We've been doing this for thousands of years. We study the Bible because it is the infallible word of God revealed to man. Now I'm saying that as a statement. Some of you may not believe that yet. Stick with me. We study it because it's true and reliable. We study it because it is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, which the scripture tells us and which I have found to be absolutely 100% unequivocally true. It is that. It is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And without it, you are stumbling around in darkness. We study it because it has the words of life and the way to salvation. We study it because it makes us strong in the Lord. We study it because God uses it to encourage us to transform us into his image, which is what's going on in the life of a believer, a Christ follower. You're being transformed. This year should look different. The next year should look different than the year after that. You should be being transformed. And that happens partly through the word of God in your life. I got nothing for you without the scripture. There is no reason for you to listen to me about anything unless I am talking about the word of God. Because this is what's true. And I have nothing for you without it. And neither does anyone else. Just so you understand, no one has anything for you if it is not the scripture or consistent with the scripture. In fact, if someone tells you something true, it will never be something inconsistent with the scripture. This is an important point. I want you to think about it. If someone tells you something true, it will never be something that is inconsistent with the scripture. If you believe something that is inconsistent with what the scripture says, you're believing a lie. You're believing something that's wrong. This is not up for debate. This is a fact. So if you're in here today and you think, I, I believe some things that that scripture seems to say something different. I've been kind of just like, I'm, I'm still going to do that. You are wrong. There is no agreeing to disagree with God. He doesn't have that one. That's not a thing that he, oh, we'll agree to disagree. Nope. You'll agree to agree or you can be wrong. That's it with God. He gave us the word and he intends us to follow it. We do not get to disagree and still be righteous. That's important. It's an important thing to understand. You are called to live according to the word of God. And if you don't, you're wrong. The word is always right. We can't disagree with him and still be righteous. And that's something we've got to face head on. If you have beliefs or opinions that disagree with scripture, you are wrong because God is never wrong. That means when you decide that you don't need to do the things commanded in scripture, you are not innocent in that. You are guilty. You are sinning. You need to repent from those things. If you're choosing to not do things that God has called you to do because you have a better idea or you just don't want to, that's called sin. The scripture calls us to live a holy life, loving and serving and suffering and experiencing peace and joy and faith and truth and love and all of that. That's what the scripture calls us to. That's what God calls us to. The scripture will transform you in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what will happen. Once you understand that, and you get it, then you can move and grow and be fruitful, leading to joy and rewards and closeness with Jesus. But if you don't understand that, you're gonna have a real hard time moving forward and you're probably going to be dying on the vine. You're probably not going to be fruitful. That's the reality of not taking the scripture seriously. You first have to believe what Christ's followers have always believed. You have to believe that the scripture is the infallible word of God. Now, there are people out there who don't believe that, who believe part of it, or who believe it generally tells us some things that are important, or who believe it's a good story, or who believe it's got some moral truth. That's not what the Bible is claiming to be. That's not what the Bible is. And to treat it that way is you might as well just not bother. This is what the Bible says about itself. This is what the scripture says about the scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God or is God breathed. 
God breathed it. He inspired the writers of the scriptures. They were not just doing this on their own. It was God-breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? That's what the scripture is. It is God-breathed. That's what the scripture says about itself. Now, if you're a skeptic, you're not really into this. You're here because you just wanted to check it out or someone invited you or someone made you come. Uh, you're not really into the church thing. That's okay. You're welcome here. We're glad that you're here. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you and you can take the scripture home with you. That's yours for free. That is yours for free. It's the best gift that we could ever give you because the word of God will have more impact on you than any other gift that we could possibly give you. It's a very loving gift and we want you to have it. But you might object here and say, hey, this is a circular argument. Didn't you just try to prove the scripture is true by quoting the scripture? And yes, I did. Um, the scripture is self-attesting, but it's not circular. It's not circular to say the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, and I'll tell you why. It's very different than somebody saying, hey, whatever I say is true, but sometimes they lie. Right? You can't really trust that. They're, they're verifying themselves. That's not going to work. Well, the, here's the thing. What if somebody said that, but they never lied? What if you tested everything somebody ever said, and everywhere you could test it, it was true, 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 true. What would happen is eventually you'd start to have a warrant or a reason to believe that the things that you couldn't test were also true. And so the Bible says that it's true, that it's God-breathed. And of course, I don't have a way scientifically to test that. But there are thousands of things in this book that I do have a way to scientifically test, that I do have a way to test through science, through reason, through nature, through a million other things. And every one of those, always true. Whether it's prophecy, whether it's archaeological evidence, whether it's history, whatever it is, always, always true. And trust me, this bad boy has been tested. And so when you test that much, you can believe that the things that it says are true. So when it says it's God-breathed, then we can believe that that's true. That's a fact. It's not a circular argument. It's a reality. We see prophecies coming from hundreds of years after they were written. Every time they come true. Every time. We see instruction for living that confirms itself over and over in the fruitful lives of people. Go and look. Go and put into one of these uh, survey things the way a Christian should live. Okay? Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't be an alcoholic. Don't be a drug addict. You know, have, have a family. Take care of your family. All these things that the scripture tells us to do, which all of us mess up on, by the way. But if you were to do all those things effectively, you would be in that percent of people who consider themselves the very happiest people in the world and the most successful people in the world in terms of the things that we really care about. That's what you'd find out because the scripture is true. Because the things it tells us, now we mess up. That's why we need the grace of God. But the things the scripture says are true and they prove themselves over and over. And when we see Jesus Christ rise from the dead, after the scripture prophesied it, after he prophesied it himself, we can trust the one who rose from the dead. That's really good evidence. If I want to prove something to you, rising from the dead would be a pretty good way to prove that I knew what I was talking about. Once we can see the Bible is true in all the ways we can test it, it's absolutely reasonable to believe the Bible is true when God claims it's true in the Bible. And so I don't make a circular argument when I talk about whether the Bible is true. I, I use the fact the Bible calls itself true, but not by itself. I use it considering all the other things that we know are true in the Bible. And when the Bible proves itself and proves itself and proves itself, and proves itself then the things that I can't test, I will believe also. That's why I believe that the things that are in the book of Revelation are going to happen. They're told that we're going to happen later. Well, every other time it prophesies, it's right. So I'm going to go with the one that never misses. Right? Okay. You get it. I'd like to continue uh, studying about the Bible. We did this uh, a few weeks ago, the first uh, part of this one about the scriptures, and I want to continue in it. There are some objections that people have to the scripture, and I want to talk about those, and I want to continue where I was from the last one. If you remember, when we were in that one, we talked about issues of transmission and translation. Okay, these were, these were objections people had to the Bible. 
that it wasn't transmitted properly or that it hasn't been translated properly. And we got to all that. And what we had left in that one was canonization, okay? And so I want to get into to canonization. I want to, I want to explain to you why we do it, though. Why are we doing it? Why don't we just study a passage of the Scripture? Well, because for some people here or that will listen online, studying that passage of Scripture doesn't do any good until they believe the Scripture is the Word of God. And for some of us, it helps us and encourages us, I'm talking about Christ followers, the saints, to remember why we believe the Scripture is true. To remember how rock solid this book, the revealed Word of God, is. And so to encourage the believers and to reach out to the, to the skeptic and the unbeliever, that's why we do what we're doing here. Because we want people who are seeking, who have hearts that are asking real questions to have answers so that they can experience and live in the forgiveness, grace, truth, mercy, joy, peace, and love of God by being saved. So let's talk about canonization. Canonization is how we talk about which books were included in the Bible, or which books weren't included, okay? So we call the canon of Scripture, okay? The canon of Scripture is what's here. This, it's a closed canon. In other words, we're not adding anything new to it. Sorry, Mormons. Not happening. We don't add anything new to this, okay? And nothing gets taken away. It's a canon, and it's a closed canon. That, that just refers to the fact that these are the books we believe to be inspired by God. The question is, how do we know we have the correct books in the Bible, I think that's a fair question. It's a, I know it's a fair question. It's a very fair question. Some folks claim incorrectly that there was a conspiracy Ooh. to include only the books the early church wanted, or let's say the powerful people in the early church, so that they could gain power or money or control. That's the idea. So they picked books that, that made them look good or that, made them, you know, that helped them control people, things like that which if you look at the books that are there, I'm not sure how they accomplish any of that, but that's the claim, okay? You can find those theories on YouTube and TikTok probably, uh, some works of pop fiction, popular uh, fiction novels. We're gonna start with the easy one though. Start with the easy one, okay, the Old Testament. So the canon, the books of the Old Testament were already set at the time of Christ, okay? Jesus talked about the Bible and he knew which books were in it, and he referred to it, and he believed it was the Bible, and so we can pretty much go, yep, we know what Bible it is. Matthew seven twelve it says, uh, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus uses this term, the law and the prophets. This is a shorthand term for the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament scripture, the law is the first five books, the books of Moses, and the prophets they just use as a shorthand for everything else, including the wisdom literature and things like that, because they considered all Bible writers to be prophets. And so it was the law and the prophets. That was a reference to the books, the 39 books we have in the Old Testament. We know that's the Bible that Jesus had and that Jesus used, and there's really not a lot of debate about what should be included in the Old Testament. There's a few people who might <clears throat> debate some things, but Generally speaking, there's not a lot. You don't get a lot of arguments about the Old Testament, okay? Jesus had the Old Testament. He believed, he said it was a scripture. He believed it. There's nothing to think about as far as that goes. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. The canon that people generally attempt to cause controversy over is the New Testament canon, okay? The New Testament canon. That's Matthew through Revelation, right? The New Testament. That's this side of your Bible that starts with the Gospels of Jesus Christ, okay? The New Testament canon. So, we have an author, fiction author named Dan Brown. He had a best-selling novel called The Da Vinci Code. You may remember it. He, I think they made a movie about it. Um, and it espouses this, this viewpoint about the canon of the New Testament through one of the characters. This is what he wrote, and I put it up here for you. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Nope, just them. That's the only ones that chose. No, it wasn't among them. Those were the ones. Um, the Bible, as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. 
It'd be nice to have some historical evidence of that. The modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, and use his influence to solidify their own power base. Okay. Now, don't get too concerned, Christians, that this guy just, you know, just took the Bible out because this is not true. 100% absolutely historically false. Did not happen. None of that happened. There's no evidence of that. It would be impossible for them to have accomplished that, to have found all the Bibles and burned them and then changed them all. I mean, it's just not, it just did not happen. Did not happen. Which is, of course, a kind of, sort of a normal part of fiction writing is that you write uh, fiction, um, which means it's not true. But that did not stop people from repeating it and making their YouTubes and TikToks about it, okay? Here's the deal. The church had a criteria, a criteria, a set of, of uh, rules about what books were actually scripture. So when these councils got together, they had rules for it, okay? Remember that the church believed the Bible was the word of God. So it was extremely important to them to get it right. This was no joke to them. They believed this was the word of God, so they were not gonna mess up. They wanted to get it right. So the main criteria was that the books included in the New Testament had to be inspired by God. That was the rule. That was the overarching rule. Okay, the rule that was above all the other criteria was that this criteria is designed to discover the books in the New Testament that were inspired by God. The church was looking to discover which texts were already inspired. They were not out there looking for new possible books to make changes, to, to do whatever. They weren't looking for that. They were trying to discover which texts were already inspired at this time. Okay, this was after the apostles were dead. They had died. So there was no more Bible being written. So the question was, which are the books that are inspired by God? When you're trying to detect something, find something, you find a tool that detects that thing, right? A smoke detector detects smoke. It does not buzz and go off unless there's smoke. No problem. That's what it's looking for. A stud finder, you put it on the wall, beeps, right? It, it's, when it finds the stud, it beeps. It doesn't beep for the drywall. You, you use a tool to try to find stuff. The church understood that. And they tried to create a criteria which would detect Scripture inspired by God and reject that which was not, to ignore the false or non-scriptural writings. And the church already understood what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit looked like and what it did not look like. They had lots of experience with this. They wanted to detect and discover that which was the Word of God. So the criteria under that banner of we're looking for those things that were inspired by God, the first one was this, apostolic origin. Apostolic origin. That word apostolic sounds fancy. It's just referring to the apostles, okay? So we have the apostles of Jesus Christ. We have the disciples. Then Judas goes away. They become the apostles. Paul then is included in that uh, group. These are the overseers. These are the heads. These are the pillars. These are the people, each one of which was directly taught by Jesus Christ, including Paul, who was directly taught by Jesus Christ, given authority. And so the first question was, does this book that we're looking at have apostolic origin? Meaning, did it, was it written by an apostle or by the progeny of an apostle, right? Somebody who, who the apostle was. So like Luke was with with Paul, okay? Mark is most likely writing the, the gospel of Mark as Peter's narrative, because John Mark is with Peter, okay? So we have these authors, and we look at it, and we go, is there indicia, indicators, that this book has apostolic origin? That was the first thing they looked at. Not, you'll notice this was not, does this book bring us power and money? It wasn't there. Did exist. This, this did not happen in secret. These councils are well known. The history of them is well known. There's no secret, so you can go do the study yourself. You can go look at it, what happened in these councils, okay? There, there was nothing about what gives us power and money and makes us control people. It was first, did it have apostolic 
origin. Jesus had been with the apostles. He gave them authority. They were the ones teaching. They were the ones bringing the gospel. The church did not need the canon of the New Testament to be closed while the apostles were still walking around because the apostles were still walking around. Okay? The apostles were eyewitnesses. They had been taught by Jesus. As long as they were still around, they were still teaching, and they were still being used of the Lord and inspired to write Scripture. So at that time, the canon of the New Testament was still open. After the last of the apostles passed away, there was no question that the canon was closed. After Really, after the book of Revelation written by John, the apostle John, the disciple apostle John, in the 90s of the first century AD, that was it. That was the end of it, and it says so at the end of that book. So, the next criteria they looked for was recognition of the churches. Did the churches who were healthy churches following Jesus Christ recognize this writing themselves as, as inspired by God? Have the church, what's the testimony of the churches? Right? We've, got, we've got some time now that these, that these books have been circulating. They've been in the churches. What is the testimony of the churches as to what is of the Lord? Inspired by God. What is the Holy Spirit attesting to? Not just for the people in his councils, but for the churches in general. So they're looking at that, right? The churches had already been reading and studying the books of the scripture since they were written. As we, you know, these letters that went out and so on, they already were studying these. <coughs> the same with the gospels. So if, if you know the history, what you know is that the 27 books that we have in the New Testament canon the ones that we read today were by and large the same 27 books believed by the early church to be Holy Scripture. So if you went to the church in Corinth or you went to the church in Athens or you went to the church in Rome or you went to the church in wherever, Syria and so on, what you're going to find most likely is that they already are looking at the 27 books that we have as Scripture. Those are the ones that they were already studying. Okay? So long before any church body canonized the New Testament and burned books and did the stuff that, you know, whatever. That's, none of that happened. They already recognized those 27 books by and large of the churches. So it wasn't that complicated of a, dis, of a discussion, okay? So the canonization of Scripture was a recognition of the authority the Scriptures already had in the church. Now, our last criteria was the content of the book itself, which would make sense. We would want to look at that, right? So when they tested the text, did the content of the text agree with the oral teachings of the apostles that had been taught in the church? So the apostles have been out throughout the first century teaching in the church. So the question was, do what we see in these books that we think may be inspired by God because they met the first two criteria, because they had apostolic origin, they were recognized by the churches now, does the content match with what the apostles were teaching? And you have to understand something about oral tradition. Uh, especially oral tradition among Jewish people. The people were known to memorize large portions of the Old Testament. That was the way that Jews did their thing, okay? These people took oral tradition very seriously. None of them, this may amaze you, not one of the disciples had a Kindle, okay? They couldn't carry around massive amounts of writing with them. Okay, so what they had to do was they had to memorize and they were good at it. And if you've ever been a memorizer, you know that the more you memorize, the easier it is to memorize. And then the more you can memorize and the easier it is to memorize, like a muscle, right? And so this is a muscle they had to use because if you wanted to say what Paul had said last week at the church, you needed to write it down and memorize it, okay? <clears throat> and so as the gospel multiplied, what we have is we have this really legit oral tradition that's happening that they can test these books against because the oral tradition is still very alive and well in the churches. Okay, we, they don't have personal libraries where they can order an ebook and it was in their Kindle or their iPad or their whatever, Android tablet. People still use those in a second, right? They didn't have that. So they had to memorize things. They had to memorize, they had to keep their oral tradition. So in an article on the subject, this is what was summed up as the criteria, okay? This is uh, Paul Wegner, Terry Wilder, and Daryl Bach. That's what they said. So all of this leads us to what was perhaps the prime criterion. Was this book produced by an apostle 
or under the auspices of an apostle? And does it obviously correspond in doctrine to what the apostles themselves taught when they were on earth as God's divinely appointed spokesmen? That's the question, okay? That's the question. The books that were rejected, they were rejected not because they did not fit the desires of church leaders. It's not why they were rejected. They were rejected because they did not meet the criteria for qualifying as inspired by God. That's it. So anyone who wants to tell you, oh, you can't believe it. You, they should, there should be all these other books in the Bible that, that say all these. Nope, that's not true. That's not true. How do we know? Because there was a very serious process for this. It's, it's right there in history for you to read. You can believe it. You can be an unbeliever, a believer, whatever. You can go through the history and see, yeah, that, that was not what was happening. There is no question, no question that the councils that brought together the canon of scripture did not do so for personal gain. And that nothing was burned and destroyed and all that kind of, that, that's just not true. That's just not true, okay? F.F. F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, he wrote this. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. What these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify or recognize what was already the general practice of those communities. <coughs> That's what happened. What do you think would have happened to all these churches, okay, all over the world? There's a council and they go, we're getting rid of all these books that you guys have been reading, send them to us, we're gonna burn them, we've got new ones for you. And they say totally different things, right? You got a million, couple million Christians and they're like, well, if I did that to you, you would laugh at that, right? If I said, hey, listen, this, this Bible is that we've decided, the elders and I have decided, we've got a new canon for you, okay? Here's the new canon. Uh, this, one, this one says you should give us a lot of money and make us powerful, and all the other stuff. It's, come on. It's absurd. The idea is absurd. It's not what happened. And historically, it just has no basis in history. So those that argue this and the Dan Browns and the whatever, it's nonsense. So if you see this on you, I mean, I don't even, I don't even recommend you get involved in that argument because you're dealing with a person who has absolutely no historical pedigree. They do not know the scholarship. They don't understand what actual people who have studied these things think, both Christians, non-Christians, atheists, whatever. They all understand this is the case, okay? All right, let's look at some of the so-called rejected books, okay? If you read the quote from Dan Brown, the Vinci Clothier Kingdom, there were more than 80 gospels that were rejected. Well, if we count all the books that could be considered other sort of biographies or sayings of Jesus, we come up with there were 39 or so of these. I don't have time to go into all of them. Uh, uh, if you really want to know why they weren't included, go read any of them. And you'll be like, what? This is, I mean, one of them's got like, the cross comes out of a tomb and starts talking. And like, it's crazy stuff. There's crazy stuff in these things, okay? Uh, but there were about 39 of these writings that went out there. Um, they were, uh, they were not authentic, okay? They were not authentic. First of all, the originals of these documents are too late to be written by the apostles or their contemporaries, okay? Whereas all the books that we have are written in the first century, these other books are written, you're really starting somewhere in the mid-second century and going forward, okay? This is what Wegner, Wilder, and Bach say. The canonical gospels all date from the middle to the late, first century, okay? So Jesus rises from the dead in the 30s AD. So by the middle of that century, you have the scripture being written. By the end of that century, it's over. It's no more, okay? So the middle to the late first century. Not long, this is not long after Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. The Gnostic gospels cannot be placed any earlier than the mid second century. It is ironic, as historian James Hitchcock has pointed out, that elements of a profession that have for years derided the Gospels as unreliable history, okay, and one of the reasons they say is because, oh, it was too long after, have now seized on even later documents as reliable guides to Jesus' intentions. So what he's saying is, there's all these people who've always, people have always wanted to attack the Bible. 
So one of the things that this act is like, well, it was like 20 years later. How do we know it was right? Well, there's lots of reasons why we do know what's right, but that's not the point. They say, that's like 20 years later. And then they find some of these Gnostic gospels from the second century that are obvious nonsense. I mean, you can go read them online if you want. I don't know why you'd waste your time, but you certainly can't. I got nothing to hide here. They're obvious nonsense, but they want to grab onto those and say, no, that's more accurate about what Jesus was doing. Really? Because it's 100 years later, or 150 or 200 years later, Okay. One of the other reasons is that these, these Gospels, you, you heard me refer to them as the Gnostic Gospels, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, because they were generally colored by a heresy that was going around called Gnosticism. This heresy was going around uh, when Paul was around. We see him talk about it uh, in the scriptures uh, as he writes to the churches and so on. Uh, it was a popular heresy, okay? Uh, it, it had a couple of different ideas. Some of the main ideas were that there was this secret knowledge. And if you were in then you would have this secret knowledge. And if you weren't in, you wouldn't have the secret knowledge. So that was part of Gnosticism. The other idea, one of the big, big ideas was that the body is evil, but the spirit is good. Now this worked out very, uh, it was very handy for them because what it meant is it didn't matter what you did with your body. You could do anything you wanted. You could be as sexually immoral as you wanted. You could do whatever, because that's just the body and the body's evil anyway. So long as spiritually you're good, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Does that sound familiar? All right, just want to leave that there. So the, these, these other late quote unquote gospels are Gnostic gospels. That's the, that's the heresy they tend to lean into. So for these reasons, even if the gospels quote unquote <clears throat> could have passed the test of apostolic authority, which they couldn't have, too late for that. Um, and even if they were accepted in the churches, like there were tons of churches that were reading these, which they weren't, they would have been completely inconsistent in content with what the apostles taught and what was well known to be true and what there were tons of eyewitnesses to, okay? So contrary to the suggestion of some, there was no major rift. Understand this. There was not a huge fight and all these dissenting voices were like, give us the gospel of Thomas. Why are you getting rid of it? That was not a thing. Okay, these were relatively chill affairs, these councils. Um, there was no major rift in the church at large about including these texts in scripture. They just simply failed the text, the test, the criteria. Just didn't, they just didn't do it. That's canonization, okay? It's that simple. You don't need to believe me. You can go do your own historical research on this. It's all there for you to find. If you do your research on TikTok, I can't promise you anything, okay? If that's where you're going to get your facts, please don't, please don't. Uh, read books. That's the better way to do it. Let's deal with a couple other objections because we've got a little time, right? 11.30, yeah, we can do this. A couple of other objections about the content of the Bible, okay? Uh, a couple of things that you will hear, and you'll hear these out there, and you may have people in your life who are atheists or agnostic <clears throat> or who make fun of you for being a Christian or whatever, and you want to be able to talk to them about the gospel. One of the things that they bring up is some of these theories that are out there, and you might find them on a weird history channel thing with a guy whose hair is like, when they're talking about Jesus was their life. So uh, these are out there. You can find these on YouTube and stuff. First one, Jesus did not exist. Okay, that theory. And you'll hear, it's surprising how many people you'll hear say this. We don't even know that Jesus existed. It's probably all just a legend of made up. Okay. Help me, Lord. You can go on the internet and find a bunch of people who will say that Jesus is not even real. He did not really exist. You'll find it. From a scholarly point of view, when I say scholarly, I mean the people who have dedicated their lives to reading, studying, doing the archaeology, doing all the stuff. From that point of view, okay? From a scholarly point, and I'm talking about Christian, atheist, doesn't matter. Simply unsupportable. Unsupportable. Unquestionably, Jesus existed. In fact, the agnostic Bart Ehrman, who makes lots of noise trying to, trying to cause stuff about the Bible and say that the Bible isn't, he's, a, he's no friend of Christianity. This is what he says, okay? He certainly existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees based on clear and certain evidence. This thing, which is surprisingly popular, you would, you would be surprised at how many people you'll find. Now, again, mostly on TikTok and YouTube and things like that, or, you know, an internet blog or whatever, 
but you will find all kinds of people who throw this one out there. What you can know instantly, instantly, when someone throws that out there, you know, you know how you can like trace the origin of something? You know they heard it from somebody else who said it, not because they read a book, okay? They heard it from somebody else, because you can't find a book that says it. If you find a book that says it, that's not a good book <laughs> because all of the scholars, they all agree. As he says, he certainly exists as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees based on clear and certain evidence. It's just not possible. By the way, there were other historical writings from the time and shortly thereafter that mentioned Jesus, including the Babylonian Talmud, Josephus, Talus, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, etc. Jesus wasn't just talked about in the Bible. No question, Jesus existed. So if that's where you're getting the, the pushback, from a skeptic, or that's you as a skeptic, let me help you out. Just, you're out of, you're out of course. You're out, you're out of there. It just does, it's not true. Historically, you're wrong. Okay? Now, some say, and have for many years, on many different things, people will say, archaeology proves the Bible wrong. Normally, this will happen when we haven't yet discovered something archaeologically. Okay, where we have not yet, so people will say, hey, the exodus didn't happen. We're not finding enough pots in the sand yet. I'm like, well, that's a lot of sand since then, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happens to pots and sand, but they'll say things like that. For instance, John 5, 2 says this. Boop, boop. I guess I didn't put it in here. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Okay, porches or colonnades. It depends on which uh, English translation you're reading. Uh, but colonnades, there's five of these, okay? Now, at one time, before the archaeological examination of that area, some said, see, Bible's not true. There is no such place, and there are no colonnades. And people were like, yeah, that seems to prove the Bible wrong. And then, oopsie, they found it, dug a little deeper, and there was Bethesda, and there were the colonnades, okay? And so all of that, hey, we didn't find it, we didn't wait. Dig a little deeper, and what happens is you always find it. You always find it. So people will say there's not enough archaeological evidence to prove the Bible's true, and all I say is, well, every time that they look and think they don't find it, 10 years later, there it is on Time Magazine, hey, we found the thing that talks about King David. We found the thing that proves that this city was there, or that city was there, or the Bible described that accurately, or the Bible described this accurately. Nelson Gluick says this, and this is a rabbi and archaeologist, okay? says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. That's, I'm going to stop there for a second because you need to understand what he's saying. We have never found, we have never discovered something archaeologically that can contradict something the Bible has said historically. Never. Now you would think that we'd, you know, well, I feel pretty good if we were like eight for 10, but we're 10 for 10. They never find an archaeological discovery that controverts a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. So not only do we find stuff, and it's exactly like the Bible said, but we look at the Bible and then we're able to go find stuff because it said it was going to be there. Now, that is an interesting thing that people will try to say that archaeology disproves the Bible because they haven't found certain things yet. Bad argument has always been a bad argument. So if that's what you get from your skeptic friend, or if that's you and you're a skeptic, you let that one go. Not a good place to argue from. The Bible is consistent. For instance, if you take something like the Book of Mormon, okay? And if you're a Mormon or a former Mormon, Great, you're welcome here. I want to, I mean, obviously I don't want you to follow the Book of Mormon because it's false, but, um, but we do love you. Here's the thing. They have spent, I don't know if you know this, Mormon church got some money, okay? They got some money and they've spent some money trying to archeologically find the things that the Book of Mormon claims. And here it is. They have found exactly zero, nothing. When we go to the Bible and we try to find the things the Bible says, we find exactly everything it says. 
And then it leads us to the other things that we find that we can find because it says they're here. Okay, so that's that. All right, we got a little time. Next, some claim that mythology and legend rose up between the time that Jesus died and rose again and the time of the New Testament writings. I just spit my little thing out there. So that basically what's happening is Jesus dies, he rises again. Um, his disciples then start to sort of, they don't remember everything right. And so they start kind of creating legends about Jesus. And that's what ends up in the scripture, right? So kind of like Paul Bunyan or something, right? Making him and Babe the Blue Ox made the Grand Canyon. That's a legend, right? That's a mythology. That's a legend. And maybe there really was a guy named Paul Bunyan at one time. And maybe the legend of Paul Bunyan grew. You know, and then, so they're saying the same kind of thing about Jesus, that, hey, these things, like some of the miracles, some of the this, some of that, it's just legends that grew up over time. It's not true. Now, here's some problems with that assertion. The first one is the most obvious. The writings of the New Testament were too early for legend. You would at least have to wait for the eyewitnesses to these events to die before you could lie about what happened there. Okay? If I said to you that the 1984 Olympics, it's almost 40 years ago, were held in Seattle, Washington, many of you would say, no, they weren't, because they were held in Los Angeles. Some of you are old as me. All right, good. I thought I was the oldest person in here, but that can't be true based on the way you guys look. Um, yeah, yeah. What do you want me to say? The 84 Olympics were held in Los Angeles. You know that. You're still alive, okay? So when the writers of the New Testament are writing something 20 years after, like we think like 20 years, like that seems like yesterday to me. When, it, when a person is 20 years old, they're a child to me, right? Like that's what I, I don't really think they're a child, but you understand what I'm saying. Like that's no time ago. To some of you, it's really no time ago, right? Like, 20 years is not a long time. 30 years, 40 years. Yeah, we remember that stuff. So if you write this book and say, this thing happened in this city and town, and somebody goes, hey, did this happen 35 years ago? This was written this day and then. And they go, no. Jesus wasn't even real. Yeah, they don't say that didn't happen, okay? It happened too quickly for it to have had uh, mythology and legend rise up, okay? Um, also, the writers of the New Testament regularly put people's names in the Bible. Why do you think they did that? So you can go ask them. People who are reading the Bible when it was written could have gone and asked people. For instance, Luke. Nope, that's the wrong one. Nope, I've got it here. You don't have it there. Luke 8, 41 through 42. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was the rule, a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house where he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. The story goes on to talk about Jesus coming back and raising his daughter from the dead. Now, here's what you could do when you read that. Okay, so you read Matthew's gospel and you go, come on, that really happened? Easy. Go. Go to, to the place. Go to the synagogue. Say, hey, was there, is Jairus still here or was there a ruler named Jairus? Did he have a daughter? Yep. That's her. Go have coffee with her. She would be about my age at the time that the book was written. Okay? At the time that this gospel was written, that 12-year-old would now have been about my age. I would remember if I was raised from the dead. <laughs> right? And especially if you bought me a coffee, I'm going to tell you what you want to know, right? The, it's, you can't have legend. You gotta build a, no, I wasn't raised from the dead. I had a minor cold and he gave me some NyQuil. No, that's not what happened. You can go find out. You could ask and you know what would have happened? People would have asked. Do you think people would have wanted to know whether this stuff was true? They would have asked and if they said, no, that's all nonsense. How, how does Christianity spread at that point? How long does it take? How easily could I get people to believe that the 84 Olympics happened in Seattle? Would not happen. Too many of us old people that remember it, right? Okay, that's why it can't be legend, okay? There were 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children in Bethsaida who were fed with five loaves and two fish. Did it happen? Go ask them. There are thousands of them still alive. Go ask them if it happened. 
You can go ask them. If it didn't happen, I think that people would have known. These were not cavemen, okay? It's like when people say things like, well, they thought that Mary could have, uh, that Jesus could have been born of a virgin because they didn't really understand how it worked. They understood how it worked, okay? They knew that women didn't have babies unless they lay with men, okay? That, that was, that's been known for a long, like how stupid do you think these people were? They have better literature than we have now, okay? You ever heard of like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates? That was several hundred years before Jesus. These were smart people, okay? They were smart people. Go ask them. Also, if you're making something up, and this one just seems obvious to me, if you're gonna make something up, you're gonna make yourself look good, right? You're gonna make yourself look bad. If I'm gonna invent a, a mythology, I'm gonna look good in it. Why would I invent something and make myself look bad? But here's the problem. In John 18, Peter denies Jesus three times. Does not look good. In Matthew 20, the mother of James and John takes the boys up to Jesus and asks Jesus to let them sit at his right and left hand. Their mama did that. Yeah, does that. And then the 10, it says in Matthew 20, 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Why? Because they all wanted to sit there. There's all this like the disciples were fighting about who was the greatest again. Why would you put that in there? What, that, that doesn't, why would you put the disciples were ripped, toned, handsome, smart, and whatever? Why wouldn't you do that? Right? If I'm going to write a legend about myself, I'm going to be legendary. I'm not going to be an idiot which is what they were half the time. And thank God, because it helps me to be able to understand what an idiot I am. They had women in positions of honor and they had women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would never happen. Would never happen if you were writing something that you wanted to be believed. It would only be written if it just, had, it just was true. You would not write it if you were trying to write a thing to get people to believe it. You would not write that women were the ones who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? People didn't trust women at that time. I don't know if you know this. Maybe some of you women do. Women haven't always been treated well. Okay? Especially back then. It was the scriptures that flipped that on his head. Jesus honored women. The disciples honored women. But why would you do that? It's not a way to get people to want to do your thing or to believe your thing. And why would you put things like, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. You'll all be persecuted. Like, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that is a good sales pitch. So what are the chances they made it up? The scripture just doesn't come off as untrue. It has all the indicators of veracity. It comes off as true. It is true. That's the bottom line. There are in the court, some of you know I'm an attorney. In court, we have um, things that you can bring into evidence and things that you can't. And one of the things you generally can't bring into evidence is called hearsay. Hearsay is when somebody says something outside of the court and I try to testify that that person said that thing outside of the court to prove that the thing they said was true. Okay, that's what hearsay is. Sounds a little complicated, not a big deal, but that's what hearsay is, okay? But there are exceptions to hearsay. Some of them are things like dying declaration. If I'm dying and I say, Daddy did it, it gets to come in. Because it was a dying declaration, it's unlikely to be untrue. As much as that, I know you would never do that. But <laughs> it's unlikely to be untrue, right? Because it was my dying declaration. So if you have indicators of veracity, we can actually make an exception to the hearsay rule and get it in. One of those exceptions is called statement against interest. Statement against interest. This is, I'm going to give you just kind of a paraphrase of what the rule says. A reasonable person would have made this statement only if the person believed it to be true because when made, it was so contrary to that person's proprietary or pecuniary interest that it was so contrary to making them look good or do good that they would never have said it. And then B, it's supported by corroborating circumstances that clearly indicate its trustworthiness. So you have these disciples and so on saying things that are very against their interest. I wonder how many people came up to Peter and were like, seriously, dude? Do you really do that? Do you really say that? Right? It wasn't good for him. It wasn't as bad. It probably kept him humble, but it wasn't good for him. Why is Paul admitting to being a horrible, horrible person because it was true. Not because it helped him, because it was true. 
That's the bottom line. So we have statements against interest, and that, generally speaking, is an indicator of veracity or an indicator of truthfulness. The apostles who taught the gospel and penned the God-breathed scripture were saying everything, everything that was against their interest, okay? They wrote things that made them look bad. They wrote truths that subjected them to persecution and death. That's the reality. The things they wrote subjected them to persecution and death. What reason would they have to lie? Especially when they could so easily get caught. And why in the world would you choose to die for these lies? Well, I wanted to make sure that people knew that I was an idiot before dying for the things that I said. Here's the thing about conspiracies. They don't last well under torture. You know what I'm saying? Like you turn the fire up and somebody says, we were lying. But here's the problem. The disciples were murdered, crucified. John the apostle actually didn't die from this, but was boiled in oil. I, here's the thing. There's the bucket, whatever. You turn on the thing. I start to see the oil bubbling. Let me just tell you what's going to happen. If I'm lying, I'm telling the truth at this point. Okay? I'm going to say it wasn't true. Let's turn, the, let's turn the fire off. I don't want to go in the hot oil. But that's not what happened. What happened was time after time after time after time after time, they stood for the truthfulness of the gospel, for the truthfulness of what they witnessed and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that. And it led to their deaths. I think John is the only disciple that we know actually made it through that experience and died probably on Patmos in the late 90s is my guess. But Peter, you know, crucified upside down is the story we have. Paul probably beheaded and so on. Why? What was, what was the benefit? What were they getting out of this? Doesn't seem like much. Doesn't seem like much. Well, if we tell these lies, let's get together and think about this, boys. We'll make these lies up, okay? And what will happen is then we'll go try to get people to believe these lies. They don't want to believe these lies. Um, well, will it? Money? No, 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 no. It's going to cost us all our money. Okay, so there must be some power. No, 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 there's no power in this. They're actually going to treat us poorly. Paul's going to have to write to the Corinthian church because they say that he doesn't talk good and they don't believe in his authority. Okay? John, the apostle, the disciple Jesus loved, is Diotrephes is trying to keep him out of the church. I mean, they weren't treated well. They didn't make any money. They get persecuted. They're stoned with the rocks. They're stoned, shipwrecked, no sleep. I mean, all the things that these apostles went through, historically true. None of them were like getting a mansion and doing, you know, that just wasn't what was happening, okay? Take care of all these people. And what kind of people were they? Church people, people who had all kinds of needs and they were there ministering to them and being ministered to. But they got nothing, nothing that the world would want out of this. So why? Let me suggest to you that the why is because it's true. And that's why. It's that simple. Because it's true. The Bible is true. This is one of the reasons the Gospels gained such legitimacy with scholars. Because these people wrote these things, believed these things, and were willing to go to death for these things that they, not just things that they believe, because people believe all kinds of things that aren't true and are even willing to die for those sometimes. But they knew whether they were true or not and they still died for them. Do you see the difference? If I start a cult and convince everybody that the Hale-Bopp comet has got a spaceship behind it, we're all gonna go to, I don't know how many of you remember this, okay? They all killed themselves, thinking that the spaceship was gonna come take them. They believed in that, okay? But that's very different to tell you some story that you believe in and to actually know. They knew whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. They're not talking about some legend from the past. They're talking about things that happened in their lifetime that they claimed to witness. They knew whether they were true and they still died for them. That's uh, just how it worked. So the time was just not enough. Now I'm running out of time. Here's the thing. The question about whether the Bible is accurately recorded, transmission, that, that question's over. I dealt with that in the last sermon. It's been accurately recorded. The question about whether the Bible has been accurately translated, it's over. 
dealt with that in the last sermon. The question about whether the correct books were included. Canonization. And so over. The correct books were included. There is no question that the Bible is accurate and those who wrote it and followed it believed it was true. No question. They believed it so much they were willing to die, to die be tortured and all the rest for it. Here's the question that's left for you. Do you believe it's true? Because if you believe that the word of God is true, it is going to transform the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you, your sex life, your money life, the way you treat people, your life at work, your attitude, all those things are gonna be changed because if you believe it's true, you're gonna follow what it says. So that's the question. I, I know it's true. And I can show you six ways from Sunday how it's true. We can go and do this a million times. I, can go, I, got, I actually have tons more, tons more on why the Bible is true. I'm just giving you part of it. But it doesn't matter what we can prove if you don't believe that it's true. And if you're not willing to follow it. And if you're a skeptic and you don't believe it's true, what do you make of it? It's not nonsense, we know that. The archeological evidence and the historical evidence prove it's not nonsense. It's not anything like these other religious books. It's different in kind. Go read them, you'll see. It's not wrong about what it says about you and me and how we should live. Your conscience will testify to that. And if you continue to say that it's not true, what is your alternative? Skeptic, I'm talking now to the unbeliever, person who rejects the scripture. What's your alternative? Atheism, nat naturalism, there is no God, everything's just happened, poof. Nothing made everything, and we mean nothing. Most philosophies will leave you with no hope and no reason for hope. You have no hope for justice if atheism is true. You have no hope for love, no hope for salvation because those things only have meaning if God is true. There's no such thing as justice if we're all just atoms bouncing around. There's just what is. There's no what ought. No one loves you. You don't love anyone. You mean nothing if atheism is true. But you know that's not true. You know it's not true. You know you mean something. You know the other people in your life mean something. So atheism cannot be true. So you've got to deal with, you've got to come up against the scripture for all your problems with it. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who's got issues with scripture. Email me. Let's talk about it. But for any problems that you have with this, you've got to come up against, you've got to decide what you're going to do with this because it is the word of God. It is true. And you are going to find yourself on the right side of it, following Jesus Christ, or on the wrong side of it, constantly battling against truth. Without God and his word, there is nothing but existential dread and sadness. That's what your life will come to. And you can't drink enough smoke enough weed, do, you know, watch enough Netflix, watch enough TikTok to run away from the existential dread and sadness that is coming after you if you continue to reject the word of God because that's all that's left. And so I implore you, I implore you to understand that without God, you mean nothing, but praise God because he does exist. He has spoken to us through his infallible word and this is what he said. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That is some good news. Some really good news. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, you have no idea how good that news is for me and for you. And if you're an unbeliever today, that can be you. That's why I teach this. I love you. I am so sad to see what's happening. It's, not, it's different than when I was young. The older I get and the more that I see the world going bad, I'm so sad to see just the hopelessness and the hurt. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. That's not something I say, okay? I don't have a jet. I'm not doing this because 
boy, howdy, is it fun. I'm doing this because I love you. I want to see you saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and the hope that he brings us because I can't get through a day without him. And you're trying to get through your whole life. You need to submit to the truth. I want you to be with me. I want you to be with us, part of the family of God. So if you're a skeptic, you're an unbeliever, it's time to stop that nonsense, stop fighting with God. You don't have intellectual reasons to reject him. Trust me. You might have heart issues that make you reject him, but you don't have good intellectual reasons. I've done the research, done the work. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Believe the scriptures and be transformed. Be complete, be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray.